Welcome back to the program. Amidst all the electronic gadgetry at our fingertips lies a simple but powerful idea that a single machine can be used to compute everything. Such was the dream of a man named Alan Turing in 1936 and later the work of mathematician John von Neumann. Who were these men? What did they know? And how deep is our indebtedness to them? This is what we're going to talk about this morning with my guest, technology historian George Dyson. He's the author of the previous works, Darwin Among the Machines and Project Orion. And it is my pleasure to have George Dyson here to talk about his newest book, Turing's Cathedral, The Origins of the Digital Universe. George Dyson, thanks so much for joining us. I thank you. Talk about this central idea that Turing had of, of a machine that could compute everything. Yes, well, I mean... Turing, who, you know, quite remarkably was 23 year old, years old at the time, he was actually trying to solve a very abstract problem in mathematical logic called, had a, everything has a German name for it, the Entscheidungsproblem, which we would translate as decision problem. And in solving this, trying to answer this mathematical problem, he just, uh, you know, for mathematical reasons, proposed a, what if you had a machine that, could do anything. Could you have such a machine? He, he proved that you could, and then he proved that even if you had a machine that could do anything, there would be certain things that it cannot do. This is, sort of sounds very perplexing, and in the course of that, he happened to sort of develop a model uh, for sort of all the computation that, that evolved since. In his view of doing everything, what did, what did it entail? What did he envision this machine being able to do? What did, what did he set out to prove? Well, of course, he was speaking of this in a mathematical sense, right. and he, so he tried to, to sort of deconstruct the idea of what a intelligent human being could do down to the most elemental things, which he, he ended up as this would simply be um, sort of a black box that has a unlimited length of paper tape running through it, and the machine can you know, can write a mark on the tape or erase a mark on the tape or move the tape one square right or left and remember what's on the tape. So it has a memory, uh, internal memory and an external memory, and you know, which seems just so absurdly simple. How could you possibly learn anything from that and how could that possibly change the world? But, but through a sort of interesting set of circumstances that, uh, you know, involved a huge number of people, more than or even mentioned, you know, in this book on the on the British side of the Atlantic and the American side and in other other countries, uh, the sort of the, the modern, what we would call a digital universe is really the implementation of, of that idea in a, in a much broader way. And talk about the nexus between Turing's idea and von Neumann's work. Well, Turing had the idea, I mean, it's of course why the, why the book is called Turing's Cathedral, because you, you, can, you can trace it back before Turing, but he sort of made this explicit. And then various people, for various reasons, implemented this. Turing was part of a group of people in England who, you know, implemented Turing's ideas and, you know, with, with much greater strength to solve the problem of, which was a life-or-death problem of trying to decode the encrypted German messages, which were which were telling the German submarines where the supply ships were, and, and you know, England was c close to losing the war. And on the American side, um, the Americans were developing the first the 
atomic bomb and then the hydrogen bomb, and they also had large computational problems. And it, it ended up through sort of through circumstances that are a little bit murky. That the sort of the American impl- implementation of it actually, in the end, was the one that was copied most widely. I mean, you know, primarily through IBM. So that's sort of why we live in the, you know, in a way, in in the von Neumann universe rather than the, uh, you know, the Manchester universe. Although, right. although we actually live in both. And there had been computational machines, but von Neumann took it to a whole nother place. He just made it faster, and he made it two-dimensional. The, the Turing model has this one-dimensional tape, and you have to go back and forth on the on the tape. And von Neumann had this. Actually, he didn't, but the engineers he worked with. He was he was like the orchestra conductor. He didn't play the violin, but he knew where the good violin players were, and he put them together. And they figured out a very clever way with with help from the people in England. In fact, they took they took. That time it was strong collaboration to make a two-dimensional matrix, so you can go to any location in the memory at any time. And they got this to work at the speed of light. Before that, it was working at the speed of sound. That that was the big breakthrough when suddenly we had a two-dimensional matrix at the at the speed of light, and it hasn't hasn't stopped since. And what was the breakthrough? The way the code was written, the machine itself. Where was the breakthrough that von Neumann brought to it? Well, there were breakthroughs from both directions there were breakthroughs on the on the very hands-on hardware side what kinds of vacuum tubes do you use how can you make an you know an electronic memory like this work and then there were breakthroughs coming sort of from above from the side of the code how are you going to write codes that once you have this machine that so you can start doing things with it and it was really the combination of these two you know, these two sort of forces that met in the middle and made it all happen. And in many ways, those fundamental ideas really are still with us today. They're still the basis of, of all the digital technology that we have today. Yeah, that's what's sort of surprising. I, you know, I spent a lot of time with the, the remaining sort of eyewitnesses to this project, and there's a few engineers, and, and uh and they all, I mean, they were trying to solve an immediate problem. This was this was also seen as a life or death thing, whether the Americans or the Soviet Union would, would develop the hydrogen bomb first so that every day counted. They, they were trying quickly to solve a problem and came up with this way of doing it. They, they in no way expected, I mean, they would be astonished to find that 60 years later we, you know, we are exactly following the, the way the pattern that, that they used, they, you know, I think if you'd asked them, they would have said, "Well, in, in two or three years, someone's going to come along with a better way of doing it." Why do you think that no one has? It goes back to the fundamental simplicity and, and genius of, of von Neumann's idea. It just worked so well, and it became von Neumann was one of his other passionate interests was the idea of self-reproducing machines, and in a way, that's what he built that the the microchip that you know that now costs you know less than the price sticker it takes to sell one uh you know they're built i mean billions of them per day they they are all functional copies of of this one particular machine it just became the, you know it was the people here I'm I'm in Palo Alto it was the 
people at Fairchild right here who, who sort of figured out a way of printing these machines on, on silicon. That's why we have so many of them. And once you start doing it, uh, the, it's sort of self-reinforcing. The software is written for the mm-hmm. machine, and the machine is built to run the software, so it becomes very difficult to change the fundamental way that it works. Part of it was how numeric logic was viewed. In their view, the numbers stopped being symbols necessarily, but really had a very specific function in the context of these machines. Yes, I mean, you're hitting that exactly the nail on the head, that if you have to identify what was the fundamental transition, it wasn't any single machine or group of people anywhere. It was this idea, which, again, I credit to Turing, that... Uh, up until then, numbers were used to represent things. You had seven oranges or six apples or, or the speed of light or something like that. And then there was this transition where, where Turing said that we can actually encode a machine as a number, and that then becomes a number that, that does something. It, not, it doesn't represent something. It actually does something. And, and that seems kind of crazy, but suddenly it was real, and that's that's the world that we're in now. I think you, you mm-hmm. know it was in the paper the other day that um, you know the Apple App Store just downloaded their 25 billionth app. And when you download an app, you you are downloading a number that does something useful to you. Talk about the way the development of the hydrogen bomb was really such a catalyst for all of this. You alluded to it before, and this was something that von Neumann was was dedicated to. I mean, he supported the idea of building this bomb. Yeah, and you have to remember where he was coming from. He was a Hungarian Jew among an unbelievably amazing group of people who survived the the Holocaust in Europe and were given refuge in America and England and, and a few other places. And they saw what had happened in Europe. They, they, you know, von Neumann's best friend was Stan Ulam, who lost his entire family in the in the Polish ghetto. And and this, you know, they had good reason to want to make sure that the American side had the most powerful weapons. They didn't want to see what happened in Poland ever happen again. And that that was their motivation. And we can agree with it or disagree with it, but you have to understand why they believe this was an important thing to do. And we also need to remember, which is a lot of things that are not really publicly known were not known at the time, but von Neumann at Los Alamos was working close collaboration with Klaus Fuchs, and they were actually working on a hydrogen bomb design. And then it turned out Klaus Fuchs was a Soviet spy, so von Neumann had tremendous fear. Or he knew that the Russians already knew everything we knew at that point about how to build a hydrogen bomb. Talk a little bit about the atmosphere and the sense of place of the Institute for Advanced Studies at Princeton where this work was going on. It's not at Princeton University, but it's in the town of Princeton, actually on a, on a what was a working farm until the Institute bought the farm in, 19, in the mid-1930s. So, it's, you know, in a strange pastoral setting in the middle of New Jersey, uh, a family named the Bambergers, who were Newark department store owners, they decided to sell out just before the stock market crash and left all their money to create an institute where, where people could work on whatever they were interested in working on. And, and it just was a miraculous piece of luck. They they set this up just before the you know collapse of their intellectual life in Europe. And so the, the institute, because they were, they were Jewish and strongly... Uh, 
academics who were who were given positions at this institute and and brought to the United States. And we, you know, we reaped the benefit of the stupidity of the Germans. <laughs> Talk about some of the other scientists, some of the other players that were part of this. There, you know, there were a large group of them. Of course, my interest is almost more in the engineers than the mm-hmm. scientists. But but among the scientists was, of course, von Neumann and his his best friend Stan Ulam, uh, Richard Feynman, who we, you know who mm-hmm. we know well, played a you know a minor but a very important role at the beginning of this whole process and. He was from Long Island. He was an American, so it was it was a mix of them: Americans, Hungarians, British people, um, and then there were people who really did the hands-on work, who, who largely were, uh, you know, they came out of the war, were people who had learned electronics during the war and, and were looking for a job, and here was this project that, that hired them, and they, they did a phenomenal amount of work quickly. And it, it, one fact that's just a, still sort of humiliating to me is that they, they did the entire project in less time than it took me to write about it. Talk about that. Obviously, they would they were imperatives along the way, as we've talked about, but the sense of working quickly, the kind of atmosphere that was there. That, I mean, that really, I think, came out of World War II. I mean, if, mm-hmm. you, if you look at what they did at Los Alamos, it was a, a boys' right. school on a mesa in New Mexico, you know, one day Oppenheimer shows up in a Jeep, and, and I mean, two years later, they they built a laboratory and and solved all these fundamental problems in science and engineering and, and built an atomic bomb. And, and that was true of not just the atomic bomb, but any number of other uh, projects. I mean, radar is another good example, and, and there was this very strong input from the radar field into this computing project, because in radar, you... You had to deal with very fast pulses of electrons, and you know, the, getting an image of what an enemy airplane is doing depends on on this you know, microsecond timing of of the echoes that come back, and that was exactly what you needed to build a computer. Everything was was sort of there and in place. Were there others who had different ideas on how to do this? Yes, there were. You know, there were easily half a dozen groups with different ideas of how to do it, and they were doing very well. If it hadn't, you know, if, if all these things hadn't come together, the, the hydrogen bomb problem, the fact that von Neumann was consulting for IBM, we don't really know that, but, I, you know, you could, there, he actually had a, an agreement with them. All that sort of together meant, you know, made this the project that got, that was the most successful. But if something had not gone through at Princeton, we certainly would have computers that would have, would have, you know, we would be following a slightly different model, or it would have converged on the same model somewhere else. As you did this research, why do you think that this same fundamental architecture that we're talking about has endured so long and so effectively? It it works, and it can be. I think the most important thing that it, even though we have clock, we think we have clocks in our computers. It, it is really not time dependent; it's sequence dependent. So, the, so it just can keep going faster and faster. Like with a car engine, you're sort of you know you're limited out at six thousand RPM, and there's a red line. There's really no such red line in computation. So we we just every year we get we have the same machine but running faster, and it does more for us and becomes cheaper. So. You know, there's there is no reason 
fundamentally to change it. And it, it just, just one of these things, it's like the genetic code or something, once there's no reason we have to have the, the sort of mapping between nucleotides and proteins that we have, but once once you set up that mapping, it's it's very hard to change it. You're sort of, you're sort of locked in. Beyond the hydrogen bomb, what other uses were, were initially seen for all of this? They didn't know. I mean, they knew that, in fact, they were all sort of amazed how useful it became. The, the people at this institute worked, they worked really on five fundamental problems. The, the bomb explosion problem, then, then there was the problem of shock waves, what happens after you have an explosion, sort of for the next few seconds. And then they worked a lot on meteorology on the on they were actually that was one of their main projects was weather prediction and they were very successful at that. I mean if you you know, look on CNN for a five day forecast, it's essentially the same codes just running you know, running with a lot better data and a lot more processing. And they which interested me most, they actually worked on modeling biological evolution and they worked on the evolution of stars over billions of years. So it sort of worked on similar problems, but on very different timescales. Talk about the biological aspect of it. Well, one thing von Neumann liked to do was sort of break the rules, and he was attracted to, to other sort of eccentric people. Mm. And so one of the people he brought in right at the beginning was a man named Nils Al Baricelli. So he was Italian-Norwegian, just the right person at the right time. He, he was a viral geneticist interested in, in what we now we call mathematical biology. And he show, you know, he wrote to von Neumann in 1951 wanting to use this new machine that didn't, didn't, almost didn't exist yet to run numerical evolution experiments where he would uh, basically, you know, inoculate the empty world inside this computer with random numbers and give them sort of play God and give them some rules by which they could reproduce and introduce mutations and, and all the other sort of, you know, things that we see in real biology. And he had fantastic results. It was, it was quite amazing what he, what he came up with so quickly. What do you think they would all make of the digital world we live in today? I think they would completely understand it because it works. It's just their machine, but running, you know, something like the internet would be, you know, at that time, the only way to, to get code from one machine to another was punch it out on paper cards and, you know, carry them over in a suitcase to the next machine. So that, but they would understand how it worked. And I, I think that it, it's, you know, there are a few people left from that period still, still alive and, and, uh, you know, one should ask them, but it's, uh, it's, in fact, the uh, last night here at the Computer History Museum, I was joined by Akravo Emanuelides, who was the uh, secretary for the project. So she was hired when she was 17 years old. She's amazing. I mean, she's here. She is, you know, alive and well, and drove her own car to the museum in Palo Alto. And she she was there at the beginning. Knew all the people. George Dyson. The book is Turing's Cathedral, The Origins of the Digital Universe. George, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you very much. Thanks for the good questions. Appreciate it. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.